we are in the book of Judges, okay? And what we're doing is we're going week by week. We've been studying this passage or this book, and we've been taking story by story, paragraph by paragraph. And we've come, last Sunday night, we came to a section of the book that is very different from what we've been doing week by week. We've come to the section of the book where he doesn't talk about a specific judge, but in chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, he talks more in generalities of what's going on as a whole. The passage that we're at now, last Sunday night I did 17 and 18. This morning we're in 19, 20, and 21, and I can't divide it because it's one whole story that just flows together. But because the nature of the material within the story, that's why I picked the title because I, like I mentioned in prayer, like I mentioned before, this text, I just wanted to jump right over it because there's some really gross stuff that just, as you go through it, you're going to see as I tell you the story and we walk through it, it's just like, really? This is in the Bible? This type of conduct and stuff that is, you know, typically we wouldn't want to even talk about. And so the story that happens in this setting is just one that is so bad. I don't know if you've it's noticed, noticed this in your Bible study personally, but Hosea uses it years later. He mentions this is one of the worst times, worst events in all of Israel's history. When he writes, he says, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. That's the story we're going to be seeing in a moment. And he says, God will remember their sins. And so he's, Hosea uses this as one of the worst instances and in stories and situations in all of Israel's history to this point. In fact, um, Judges 19, if you jump down to the very last verse and get a sense of what we're talking about in the middle of the story, look at Judges 19, verse 30. And it was so that all who saw it, we'll get to what the it is, said this, there was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. And so the story just, it, it's a low point. It is just a horrible, horrible situation that takes place. Now, in order to understand it, before I get into the details and try to get something, let's understand understand what we're talking about. We are in the darkest days of Israel's history. These are not the golden years. These are the black years. The first part of the book, as I've already mentioned, has been dealing with individual accounts, story by story of the different judges talking about the punishment and deliverance that came to the Jews. And what happens, he talks about 12 different judges throughout the book of Judges, and he talks about how Israel had rebelled against God. God punished them, that the reproof, the correction. They repent. God sends a judge to rescue him. And let me remind you, a judge is not like the judge with the black robe that we have today. It is a military leader. It is somebody who is helping conduct government or revival. It's a leader. It's a leader, a community leader is the idea. And then they would have a period of rest, but then they did it again. They rebelled, and then they would have the, the same thing happen. And there's 12 cycles that take place in the book of Judges with 12 different characters who are they're trying to bring these people to freedom, to independence, and to revival in the Lord our God. And uh, so the last five chapters aren't about a specific judge, but what they do is they give us a little bit of insight as what's going on in the people as a whole. In fact, if we go into the story and look, there's a time where they they're going to come to the high priest. They come to, this one is Phineas, the high priest, who is the grandson of Aaron. That, and it makes comment about that. That helps us tremendously to get an insight into the book. It takes us not at the end of the book of Judges, actually, in timing, but really what it's telling us is that this gets us to the very beginning of the book of Judges. They wrote their books different than us. We do chronological. They didn't. They would write about accounts, and then they would 
often give a wrap-up or a summary. It's like Genesis 1 gives you the creation account, and then it's repeated in Genesis 2 to give you more details. That's the way the Hebrews would write their history. They weren't so concerned as we are about ABC following in order. So they give us a lot of the details, and then they give us insights into why all this happened. How did they get that bad? How did they end up needing all the judges? And so when you read the book, take the last five chapters, bring them up to the beginning of the book, and remember this is giving explanation of why they had to do, why God did what he did with those 12 different judges. The two, the last five chapters have two major stories. They're both of them dealing with a Levite who is the main character that is the, the religious leader, supposedly, the clergy of the, of the Jewish nation. The f- chapters 17 and 18 deals with religious apostasy. It tells how did they get so bad spiritually in going away from the Lord. It talks about the religious corruption. If you were with us Sunday night, we talked about how they, uh, they had private gods. They made idols, even though they called them L-O-R-D, capital letter, Jehovah. They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping in different tabernacle centers. In fact, it became common to have household worship centers, not the common center where God had the tabernacle established at, at Shiloh. And so it talks about all the idolatry. Chapters 19, 20, and 21 talks more about the anarchy that came as a result. And it talks more about relationships, not religiously, but interpersonal, inter, intertribal relationships. And the story doesn't deal with immor- uh, idolatry, but a lot of the story in chapter 19, 20, and 21 talks about immorality. It talks about sexual activities and escapades that take place that are really gross. And so that gives you a setting, but this explains a lot, and we're going to be looking at how this flowed in this chapter, and why they got as bad as they did, and how they did it, and watch this chart as it unfolds in the next few minutes as we look at it. Now, in both of these sections, uh, these stories, chapter 17 and 18, chapter 19, 20, 21, they both repeat the same phrase, and it's a very insightful phrase. As, you know, it talks about in those days there was no king in Israel. That's mentioned four times, by the way. But the full phrase is, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's mentioned twice. Once with each story to help you and I to understand that he's telling us the people have gotten away from God. And they are doing their own thing. They are living the life the way they want. Do they come and worship God? Sure. Do they, have, um, do they have in their mind Jehovah? Yeah, they really do. But he's basically just a formality. They are coming to worship, say, on a, on a Sunday. They would come to worship on their, their Saturday. They would come and worship, and then the rest of the week they would do their own thing. Now, it's a good thing that never happens in America. Okay. But that's what's happening in Israel, is the people are up here talking about God, but in here he's out of their life. He's, he's, not a, he's not an integral part. They're worshiping the way they want, and they're acting the way they want and how they want to do. And so I come to the story, and here's, here's the struggle I had, okay, is from chapter 19, 20, 21, there's no good ending. There's an, usually the stories we want to end in something positive. There is nothing positive at the end of the story. So I'm studying it through, and I'm going, okay, um, do we just leave it in the garbage pit? Leave people at a trash can? Because that's where the story ends. So how do we preach this text? I know the Spirit of God will just lead me to some totally different text and just ignore it. Can we get something positive out of it? And here's where I was rebuked this week. is saying, wait a minute, it is included in inspired Scripture. And the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I believe that, do you? 
Okay, that God gave it. And it is, all scripture is what? Profitable for doctrine, for correction or reproof or correction, instruction of righteousness that the man of God, the person of God, may be truly or thoroughly furnished in all good works. So if I believe that it is inspired of God, there's got to be some redeeming quality or benefit of this text. And then I start thinking a little bit further, where in in Corinthians he writes, and he's talking about the stories that he's been telling from the time of these people living in this era from the wilderness through Joshua and the judges. Now all these things happen, excuse my spelling, happen unto them for examples. They are written for our admonition. The word is correction. They serve as an example for us so that we don't do certain things. In fact, he in, in Corinthians in that text where he talks about this, Okay, this is the text that he says, Wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed. Okay, and so lest we fall. And so it's a warning passage. Some of this is recorded to warn us, and that's exactly what Hebrews seems to expand upon. In Hebrews 3, when he's referring to some of these very same stories, he makes this comment, they they always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of us the ones who read it later on, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from God. So these texts, the stories, as, as um, uncomfortable as it, as it is to teach the text, it's got benefit to it. There's warnings here in this text, warnings for you and me, so that God says, the, I recorded them, I put them in the Bible, so that we would learn from them, so that we would avoid repeating the same mistakes. And I think there's two major lessons of warning for us. One is this, it can, on a national level, on a community level, it describes for us how far a good nation can fall when it forgets God. How a nation who might be founded upon principles of the word of God, that's Israel. How they, when they said, every man's doing that which is right in their own eyes. What happened uh, politically? What happened publicly? Where, how far could they have fallen? And they did fall far. In fact, let me give you the story. Okay, for me to read all five uh, or three chapters would take up the entire time. So I'm going to summarize and you reference as we go through. The story starts off in chapter 19 talking about a Levite. This Levite is living near Ephraim, one of the central nations in their area, and he has a concubine. A concubine would be his second wife. Never in the Bible is it promoted or encouraged to say, take two, three, ten wives. Polygamy was not promoted, but it was, it was happening. It was part of the things that God was weaning them off, but he was patient with them at times, and so there was polygamy that showed up, and then by the New Testament it's basically going to be vanishing. But here he has a a Levite, who is a religious leader, who should know better, he has a second wife. This second wife becomes unfaithful to him, as you read the verses. She she, uh, leaves him, and she goes back to her dad's place. Her dad lives in the town of Bethlehem, which is nearby this very region where Judah and Ephraim shared a border, and Bethlehem was in that region. And so she goes to her dad's place, and she's there for an extended period. If I recall right, the text says four months later, hubby comes. And Hubby wants to get her back. And it says that he speaks to her, in the Hebrew it has words of love. He is going to sweet talk her, and he's going to say, come back with me, come back. I want you back. She agrees, and her dad is so excited that the dad says, let's have a party. And let's celebrate. And so what happens is they stay and they celebrate for a night. And then another night. And then another night. And so they get to the fifth day, and Dad is saying, we got to still celebrate. Don't go home yet. Don't go home. I don't want you to leave. Let's have another day of celebration. The, the Levite and his servant and his wife 
second wife, they are going to leave, but they have a meal, and dad says, oh, it's getting late in the day. You've got to stay another night. He says, no. This happens every day. You insist that we stay, we party, and it gets real late in the day. I'm leaving. It's late in the day, but we've got to go. If we don't hit the road now, we're not going to hit the road. And so they pack up, and they leave that evening, or in the latter part of the day. Finally, they're on the route. Now, Bethlehem is very near what major city in Israel? Jerusalem. Now, at this time, it wasn't called Jerusalem. It was called Jabus. J-E-B-U-S. As you read in the next few verses, you're going to say that the first town that they came to within, within a short time was Jabus. And the servant says, it's getting late in the day, master. You, your concubine, we should find a place to stay. And the master says, no. I am not staying inside that town. That's a wicked town because it's filled with Gentiles, with Canaanites. It's at that time that the Israelites have not taken over Jerusalem. And so the Canaanites are in charge of old Jerusalem or Jebus. And so he's not going to stay there because he doesn't feel that it's a safe place. This is so ironic. He travels a little bit further and they come to a little town called Gibeah that Hosea had mentioned. And it's a Benjamite town, or Benjaminite, however you want. I've shortened it through the notes. They've come to the town where that's owned by the Benjaminite, the, the tribe of Benjamin, and they stay the night. That's their plan. They walk into the gate of the city, and their idea is we sit at the front doors, like we have the double doors. You sit between the double doors, and you kind of wait, and you just kind of look at your, everybody in town, and the rule of the culture of that day is what? If you sit there, what are people supposed to do? They're supposed to invite you in. It is a sacred duty. I mean, this was really a sacred duty more than you and me can think of. Back in that culture, if you saw a visitor, you were commanded by the Old Testament law to entertain strangers, to bring them in to open up your home. Nobody does. People are going through, but nobody's offering this traveler and his wife and his servant a place to stay until there's an older man who comes in from the fields. He's not of the tribe of Benjamin, but of the tribe of Ephraim right next door. He says, do you have a place to stay? No. But he says, why don't you come and stay at my house? If you stay at my house, I'll give you food. I'll take care of your animals. No, no, we have enough for our animals. We're self-sustained. We just need a place to rest for the night. No, no, no. You come to my house. I'll take care of you. They agree. They go to the house of the Ephraimite and they're there and it talks about in the text that they're having a feast. They're having the supper. And while they're having the feast, all of a sudden there's that loud banging on the door. Okay? The Ephraimite goes to the door. And there's a group of sons of Belial, or literally worthless men. Sometimes it's used as crooks. Sometimes it's talking about idolaters. In this passage, it's talking about men who want to exploit others sexually. They're pounding on the door. And they're demanding of that Ephraimite who lives in their town, send out the man, the Levite. We want the Levite to be sent out so that we can have our way with him physically and sexually. These guys, this city is filled with what sin? What town does it remind you of? Sodom and Gomorrah in a Jewish city. And so the Ephraimite, he says, um, no, I don't understand this. This is totally contrary to you and me. But as you look in the story, the Ephraimite says, no, absolutely not. You can't have the man. And look at verse 23 of chapter 19. This is where it gets even more disgusting. The man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, don't do this, my brethren. Chapter 19, verse 23. I pray you, I beg you, do not so wickedly. Seeing that this man has come into my house, do not this folly. Behold, here is my daughter. 
a maiden or a virgin, and his concubine. Them will I bring out, and you humble them. You do with them what seems good to you. But unto the man, do not the vile thing. How is it it's okay to rape his daughter and the concubine, but not the man? It's a disgusting situation. And so they offer, the old, uh, the old Ephraimite is saying, have my daughter. I, again, I don't understand this. I understand the culture and the idea, but seriously. Seriously, this seems so vile in our minds. The men, it says, they insisted. That they said, no, we want the man. And in the Hebrew, it has the idea that they aren't pounding and knocking. They are physically throwing themselves at the door. They are aggressive. This is so, they, they are so, we want the man, we want the man, we want the man. So the, the Levite has a solution. The Levite says, I'll take care of it, you keep your daughter, they can have my second wife. And he puts his second wife out on the doorstep. Those, those men, corrupt men, they take her. And what happens is they molest her all, all night. Until in the morning, she is so physically beaten that all she can do is crawl to the doorstep. Now, by the way, look at the text as you just look and see the verses. The Levite and the Ephraimite, they went to bed. They went to sleep. While his wife that he had been speaking sweet loving words to, who he had gotten back after she had committed, been unfaithful, he went and gathered her back. Now he gave them to these people and he's sleeping at night while she is out in the midst of all these corrupt men who are abusing her. And what happens is he gets up in the morning and he opens the door and she's there at the door stoop and she's collapsed. I don't know, the text doesn't say if she is dead at this moment. But he says to her, this, this is how not to talk to your wife, okay? Look it down in about verse 27. The Lord rose up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, went out to go his way, and behold, the woman, his concubine, was fallen down at the door of the house, and her hands were upon the threshold. And he said to her, up, let's go. Talk about a sensitive fellow. Wouldn't you want to smack him? Yes, absolutely. So the husband, he says it, and she doesn't move. Surprise. So he, now, again, is she dead? Or she's nearly dead, if not dead. So he loads her on the donkey. Such a kind fella. Loads her on the donkey and heads for home. No, no calling a doctor, no calling anybody for help. Let's go. I got to get to work. I got to go. And he takes his wife and his servant and he heads for home. Somewhere between, you know, that night and somewhere between when he gets home, she's dead. She dies. And so what he does is he's so disgusted that those men abused his wife, who he gave to those men. He is so disgusted that he takes her body and dissects her into 12 pieces. And then he mails, I don't know how he does this, he mails the 12 different pieces to the leaders of the 12 different tribes. And basically, it's an idea of saying, hey, look how disgusting what happened in Gibeah. You got to do something about it. This is what it led to. And that's the passage we read that since the day they came to, out of Egypt, nobody has seen anything like this. This is so vile. And so here you've got then the, the, 11, the, the tribal leaders 
11 of them say, we have got to do something. This is, we got to find out what's going on. We got this box in the mail that had a body part. We've got to figure out what's going on here. So they all gather at the place of Mizpah, and there's 400,000 soldiers. Everybody showed up. This this is the first time since Joshua has conquered the land and said, go to your separate parts, that everybody has gotten together over over this tragic situation. They're gathered together and they say, hey, Levite, you, gave, you sent your bot, tell us your story. And he tells the story. By the way, in the story, he leaves out a few facts. Guess what facts he might leave out? Yeah, he leaves out the fact that they were after him. Okay? He leaves out the fact that he put her out. And he makes it, you know, and, and by the way, everything was vile. What the Gibeites did was totally vile. But the people say, wait a minute, this is horrible what they did. We demand, and they send a message by text, by tweet, I don't know. Okay, I doubt it, but I don't know. They sent the message to the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin and say, we want those men who did this. We want to kill those men or execute them, capital punishment, which was appropriate for what they did. And so the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, their response is, no, you're not touching any of our men. We don't think they did such a bad thing. So they defend those men of Gibeah who wanted to commit homosexual rape, but then they raped the woman and killed her. And it gets so bad that they go to war over it. They will fight to the death to defend the rights of those individuals who committed the heinous crime. And so the story goes on and it talks about the battle. Part of the entire account is about how they fight each other. This civil war, 11 tribes against one, and how they go to war. By the way, can we stop for a moment and just remind you the setting? They, in the previous couple chapters, they decided that we don't need a worship center. We can worship any way we want. We can start including idolatry with our worship. And by the way, what does the Ten Commandments say? Thou shalt not make any... We can do that. It's okay. We can do that because we still think God, but we can do what we want religiously. When somebody shifts religiously, they will shift politically and publicly. It's always the case in history. The nation that forgets God doesn't keep high moral standards. They start plummeting when God is out of their life. Watch the story. The Jews, when they put God out of their life, they, they, they revert to homosexuality. Entire, entire uh, city is involved with it, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You read Romans 1, verses 26 to about verse 30, and it talks about when people are turned over to this type of a sin, what happens that God will turn them over to the vain imaginations of their mind? And how evil it just, God considers this to be one of, the, one of the cancerous sins that destroys the culture. He goes on. Does the text not talk about violent assault on women? On, on diminishing the ladies? How is, I'm sorry, I, I just don't understand this. How do you say we're going to defend, we're going to defend the, the, the man, but the woman is up for abuse? That makes no sense to me. And by the way, I'm going to throw this out, that wherever the word of God is preached, ladies are elevated. They are lifted up in that culture. 
They are not diminished. They are to be elevated to a place of great respect and honor. Take away the word of God, and you lose that dignity for the ladies. Here you have in this an entire tribe, an entire tribe defending atrocities. It's their right to practice the gay sexuality. It's their right to do what they want to do. It's okay. It's their right to abuse because who are we to say it's wrong? Does anybody have a cringe in their spirit right now that says, "Uh uh-oh, I know of a country that seems to be headed the same direction? Here you have that all because people doing that which is right in their own eyes, and you have this, this decay, the moral decay, it gets worse. It gets worse. They, they go to battle, and when they go to battle, what happens is there's this, this, it's a drawn-out text in the battle. They, they have three different episodes in the fight. But they talk about, let me give you the stats, right around 26,000 men from the tribe of Benjamin are going to face off against 400,000. Who do you think has the better odds? Okay. And they do win. Eventually they win. Twice they get beaten, but eventually the 11 tribes win out. When the 11 tribes win out, They are so upset because they lost people. They lose their soldiers that they go into a vengeful rage. And they go into the city of, of, uh, or the cities of Benjamin, and they go throughout all of Benjamin's territories. There's not just Gibeah, there's other towns. They wipe out everybody. They wipe out, and it says specifically, they wipe out the women, the children, and the cattle. Not just the soldiers that are fighting against them. They wipe out everybody but 600 of the soldiers that are left. So of their 26,000 men in battle, there's only 600. Of all their wives and kids, they're all gone. They have totally destroyed their entire brethren. Even the people that were not guilty. It's the slaughter of the innocents that's taking place. Well, when it's all done and they've done the slaughter, they regret it. Oh no, what have we done? We've wiped them out. All we've got is 600 men. With 600 men, uh, there's, a, there's a natural situation here. The tribe is going to die off. Because the men don't have wives. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What we should do is give them some of our daughters to be the new wives. Oh, wait, wait, oh, t- time out. We can't do that. When we first gathered, we made a commitment. We made a vow. Our vow that we made in anger was none of us are to give any of our daughters to those people. So now we made a vow that we can't give any of our Jewish daughters to these 600 men to keep their tribe going. So we got to figure out where can they get wives. Otherwise, we're going to lose one of the 12 tribes. So they decide that uh, we've got to come up with a plan. So their plan is this. Who in Israel, any towns in Israel that didn't send any people to come fighting in this battle? Roll call. They take roll call and they find out there's a city, Jabesh Gilead, that didn't send any soldiers. So let's go get Jabesh Gilead. They take the marching force, they go to the town of Jabesh Gilead, and they wipe out everybody in the town except for the virgin girls. They have 400. Wow. 
We did it. We found wives by killing everybody in their families. So we found 400 people. But that's only, that's a problem here because we have 400 new wives. That leaves us with how many unmarried men? Yeah, there's 600 men. We need to find 600 wives. We only found 400. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We made a vow. We will not, none of us will give any of our daughters to those men. We've got to come up with 200 more wives. And we can't marry Canaanites. We, that, that would be against the word of God. And we're, we're very spiritual in what we're doing. So what they do is they decide, hey, wait a minute. Next spring coming up, we have a festival, uh, probably the Feast of Tabernacles. We have the festival at Shiloh. And what happens is the young ladies, especially the unmarried ladies, part of the Feast of the Tabernacles is they get together and they have their own little festival with other unmarried ladies and they do their celebrating like David celebrated, their dancing it's called, that they would celebrate as they march through the area and around the tents and they have their parade that they're doing and, and so they said, tell you what guys, you 200 that don't have wives, we can't give you our daughters, but here's our advice to you. Because we are not going to break our word. You cannot have or take our, our, you cannot, we cannot give our daughters to you. But if you sneak up and you kidnap 200 of our daughters and make them your wives, then we've kept our vow because we never gave them to you. You just took them. Doesn't this stink? Okay. The ethics of this. And so those 200 guys show up. They're hiding. The gals are doing their celebrating. They come running out. They grab 200 of the girls. They take them back home. And when the fathers come to complain, they say, they took one of my daughters. Well, you kept your word by not giving her to him. So it's okay. And because he has already used her, you don't want the daughter back. That's that Eastern culture. That's still pre- prevalent today. I, the story makes me... Ugh. Isn't this one of those good godly stories that you walk on and say, Wow! Did I learn morality today? So here's the story. This is how the story unfolds. The decay of the nation. I already mentioned several things. The value of life. life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this, are we not? That when people get away from the word of God, the value of life is diminished. Innocents get destroyed. Do we have any of that problem going on in America? Yeah. Except for we're not cutting up a woman and dissecting and putting her parts all over the place. We only kill by the millions babies. Why? Because our country that was founded upon biblical principles is shifting. And when you shift from God, you shift your moral standards. So you have the atrocities. Violence, violence, violence. We wipe out entire groups of people. They kill women, children. They, they destroy even, you know, I, I, the women and the children, the cattle. They're just wiping out everything. Oh, yeah, then we regret it afterwards. Should we talk about violence in our schools? And where our culture is dipping? We can just go on and on. Talk about twisted ethics. I'm advising you to kidnap the girls so I can keep my promise. Do we have leaders with twisted ethics? This this really sounds like 2018. Horrible, horrible. 
becomes, there's, a, there's a lesson that warning to us how far a good nation can go, how evil it can get when it forgets God. You say, well, yeah, well, that's the nation. What do we do about it? Number two is this is where it hits us. What we should personally avoid is God's chosen people. Now, we are not Israel. We don't replace Israel in the sense that we are not, in the New Testament, the Israel that gets all of the, the benefits of the Old Testament and therefore we have spiritually replaced them. But we still are God's chosen people. God has called us, chosen us to live holy lives. Like he had chosen them to live holy lives. And there are just several statements I want to make about the idea of you and I on a personal, ethical basis. Because if we want to make a cultural impact, it has to start with our homes. It has to start with us. It doesn't start by us campaigning in Washington and saying, let's clean up Washington. Where we have to clean up is our own lives and become the light of the gospel to the world around us. To become the salt to become that light that makes an impact in our neighborhoods. And as we do that, then we spread further and further in the community. So these important statements, four of them are things you definitely want to avoid from the text. Okay, the fifth as well will show. Do not become selective in what sins you and I oppose. Do not become selective in what sins we oppose. I think that is, a tr- that is such a major, major element of this entire story. The tribes in chapter 17 and 18 did nothing. When the Danites got into idolatry, moved from where they had promised to be and where they were assigned by God, they moved all the way from the south to the very north to an area that God did not give them. They took with them idolatries and they sent up their own worship center, different and distinct from Shiloh. We looked at that last week. But nobody said anything. That's their business. That's okay. It's not bad because it didn't take any skin off of my nose. And so the rest of the 12 tribes were not bothered by the idolatry. They were not bothered by the disobedience. But they did get upset with the rape and murder of that woman, which they should have been, by the way. They should have been upset. But they didn't get upset about kidnapping 200 other ladies. They didn't get upset about wiping out the families of 400 other people. None of that. They selectively chose what bothered them, what really got their gourd. This is what happens to people when we start saying, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. All of a sudden, there's selective things that we get upset about. And by the way, we're, we're, we're as guilty as others if we're not careful. What I mean by that is this. We get upset, and rightfully so, we get upset over certain sins. If I preach or mention certain sins, they're going to get your dander up. And rightfully so, they should. They're they're gross things. They're bad things. But they're things that we don't do. So it is easier for us to get upset about it because that's not in my life. Where we say very little. Or I'm meddling. If we talk about tax insurance fraud. If we talk about overeating. If we talk about holding a grudge, if we talk about disunity within the home or the family. And yet, according to the book of Proverbs, God says that, that discord is one of the six things I hate the most. 
with pride, hatred, and unforgiveness, etc., etc. Do not, you and I must be careful that we do not become selective in what sins bother us. If we are going to live according to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, we should mourn, we should grieve over all sins because in God's eyes, sin is sin. We need to be careful that we are not selective. Right along with that is this, that goes right so close. Do not attack other people's sins while ignoring your own. What does Jesus talk about this? How does he say, don't get concerned about the speck in somebody else's eye when, what do you have in your own? You got that, that, that beam, that log, whatever it is. Well, here's the Levites, the, or the Levite in the story. He's very upset they killed his wife, and rightfully so. He should be upset. But he gave her to them. He... Uh, he did this. The text makes it clear when he's talking to them. He said, they were going to kill me. That's his defense when he talks to the, 12 tribe, the 11 tribes. He knew that he was in danger. And then you come on out, buddy, and you say, get up, woman. Seriously? Seriously, man, you don't see anything in your actions that has any form of culpability in what was done? Oh, by the way, when he tells the group, he doesn't share his participation in it. Does that sound familiar? That when we talk about something that we don't like, we often leave out incriminating evidence against ourselves. The 12 tribes, they're upset over what Gibeah did. The, Gibeon, the Gibeites, they, they raped this woman, they killed this woman. How awful! But they go out and wipe out entire populations. They destroy an entire tribe by the thousands. If there was 26,000 men, how many family members do you think there were? If we just average out and say, okay, per man, there might have been on average four people. They, they wiped out 100,000 people. But we are upset about this one woman. And then they condone all these... Listen, this is what happens when people put God out of their life and start doing what's right in their own eyes. We're, we're, we're vulnerable. All of a sudden, you know, we can get upset out of corporate crime, corporate greed. We can get upset over, you know, the social ills of the day. We can get upset over the corrupt politicians. But what about when you gossip? What about when you have uncontrolled anger? What about when you, I, we, we have prayerlessness? We aren't reading the Bible. We aren't involved in sharing the Word of God. We're hypercritical of others. But my sin's not as bad as theirs. Do not attack others' sins while ignoring your own. It's dangerous ground. It's terrible ground to be on. Number three, do not act rashly without earnestly, slowing down, earnestly seeking God first. 
Now, in the text, you're going to find, and if you and I were to read and look at the different passage and jump down in this story, it's chapter 19, I'm sorry, chapter 20. In chapter 20, you start in about verse 18 and following, you're going to find what happens. They gather together. They've heard the Levite. They're upset about it. We're going to do something. And so what they do is they go to, be, to their high priest and say, um, you know, who should go first in the battle? Now, I want you to catch something. That's the, first, that's the first thing they ask of God through the priest. Before that, okay, before seeking God's direction, they had already determined we're going to battle. They had already made some vows that if you don't come and fight with us, you're going to get killed. That, uh, that none of us are going to give our wives to these Benjamites. They made those statements. They made those vows. Then after they made the determinations, then they go to God. And I'm giving them credit. They went to God. They go to God and they say, God, which one of our tribes, who should go first? Judah. Judah was the biggest at this time. Next to Ephraim. They're the, they're the, the, when they first came into the land, they were the, they were the ones in nearby. Judah, you go first. And... Uh, Part of the, Judah, by the way, remember, her family is from Bethlehem. They were from that same tribe. So Judah, you have first game. So Judah goes to battle, and Judah gets beaten in battle. They lose several thousands of men to the Benjamites. who are, They're outnumbered, but the Benjamites have a secret weapon. It's called left-handed people. Isn't this a strange thing? Left-handed people are your defense mechanism. The, do you remember what the left-handed people were really good at? David was good at this, the sling, which was your long-range weapon. That it talks about how they were deadly with it. Well, they wipe out thousands. I forget the first battle is 18,000, something like that, get wiped out. The people come to God and they say, oh God, who should go next? And he says, okay, go, go and send the next group and 22,000 are beaten. Then you go down in the text and you look at verse 26. It says, Then all the children of Israel and the people went up and came unto the house of God, wept and sat there before the Lord and fasted until evening. This is the first time that they paused indefinitely. It's the first time that they, that they are really involved with this serious God, what should we do? See, they've made plans. They've made all kinds of arrangements but they want God to be the salt and the pepper on their arrangements. You sprinkle it, God. You give us your blessings. You, you, you know, you know, a little dab will do us. I wonder if God let them get beaten the first two times so that they would finally come to the end of themselves. That they finally come and say, God, what do you really want? Now, it's true. God wanted them to, to go and to punish the, the Benjamites. There's no doubt about that. And they did. But then they overdo it and almost wipe out the entire tribe. Listen, here's the bottom line. You and I need to make sure we are not rash. We are spirit-led individuals. Major decisions. Opportunity that the emotions can run rampant. The entire second half of chapter 4 of Ephesians is all about be careful with your mouth. Be careful with your temper. Be, ter be careful what you do or say. You know, watch out. Be forgiving, not bitter. It's all dealing with not rash behavior, but spirit-led behavior. Don't become vengeful, the Word of God says. Be careful. Vengeance is God's. You leave it to Him. Don't you do it. 
Be careful. When people start, Christian people, start acting out of their own emotional rashness, we make more problems than we do solve prob- solving the problems. We hurt people. We hurt neighbors. We hurt friends. We hurt individuals. We hurt our testimony. We hurt our Lord. Take a lesson. Don't be selective over sins that we get bugged by. Make sure you're not attacking others when you yourselves are sitting, you and I are sitting with beams in our eyes. Make sure that we spend time before the Lord earnestly. Not just saying, God, we've done all this, now you bless it. But earnestly seeking God's direction and desires and determinations, not our own. And by the way, can I add this? Is it easy to talk ourselves into things? Be careful. Be careful. Number four. Do not justify bad behavior by twisting words and ethics. Do not justify bad behavior by twisting the words or ethics that we do day by day. Okay, you know where I'm going with this one. This isn't obvious. We made a vow. You cannot, we will not give our daughters to you. But you can take them. Okay, it's just, I'm so glad we don't do this in our day and age. We never redefine things by making them sound good. We, we wouldn't do that, would we? We wouldn't all of a sudden saying, yeah, I know I shouldn't be watching that stuff on the internet, but it's not that bad since I didn't do anything physically. What's that gross stuff I watch? Um, besides, you know, so I stole things from the internet, copyright or games that, that I didn't pay for. I took them... You know, if they, you know, if they didn't want them to be stolen, then they want to put them out there. Or that idea, you know, yeah, I lose my temper at home, I get mad, and I yell, but I don't curse. And I don't hit people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know my marriage isn't what it should be. And I know I'm not, I'm not you know, spending the, the focus that I should on building the marriage, but, but I haven't committed adultery. So I'm not that bad. Oh, we could go on and on and talk about how, you know, I go to work and I tear down the boss and I don't work hard. But, uh, you know, hey, if, if, if I don't do what everybody else does, then I will appear holier than thou. Or, you know, yeah, I, I, I tell stories that are off-colored, but I don't use the dirty words. Or the idea, you know, we're, we're dating. And while we're dating, we've gotten a little bit physical in our dating, but we love each other. And we think we're going to get married one day, so it's okay. Or that whole idea, you know, um, I'm talking to somebody, and I'm going to say some things about another person. It's probably going to hurt their reputation. It's going to tear them down, but it's true. So it's not gossip. We can so easily do what they did, redefine ethics and behavior and justify actions. You need to be careful. We need to be careful and learn that these are warning signs. If this is happening, they're warning signs that are saying, you and I are doing that which is right in our own eyes, but not before the Lord. And we have to ask this question. Are we seriously letting God call the shots with the way we handle our finances? With the way that we attend church? With the way that we respond to the trials? With the purity of our, what we see, what we watch, what we do? With how we talk to other people. Is God in control when it comes to forgiveness? 
Is God in control when it comes to prayer and Bible? Is God really in control or am I doing that which is right in my own eyes and justifying it? This is a scary text. I find it vulgar with a lot that has happened. And yet at the same time, as I look at the vulgarities and then I hold up a mirror, I go, yuck. They aren't the only ones that have yuck in their lives. We must be careful that we do not repeat the same attitude. The actions will be different. But the attitude of saying, it's my life, I can do what I want. It is not my life. It is not your life. You have been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, what's your every do? Do all to the glory of God. Can I give you the final lesson that I think is out of this text? I really struggled. I was telling Pastor Arden, I think Pastor Travis walked in on that conversation. We were, we were, I was saying that this passage bothered me because there's nothing, nothing that I walk away with that's, in, that's redeeming or beneficial, and yet here it is. Do you remember where we started at the very beginning? The stories, all this, these five chapters, when did they occur in history? At the end of Judges? Hello? Did anybody hear me? Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. They all occurred when? Now think this through. They did this garbage at the beginning of the book of Judges. Did God ignore them and wipe them out? Or did God still send judges to them? Time and time again. Did God still care about them? Did God still want to use them? The answer is yes. 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 He didn't condone their evil deeds, but he was willing to listen to their repentance. And when they repented, he came to their rescue. He forgave them. He sent them judges. And then we go a step further where we'll embark on tonight. We will go from judges right into the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, there is revival. In 1 Samuel, there is the establishment of the golden years of Israel under David and Solomon. Wait a minute, that, that was just within years of what happened. 200 years of, of that kind of garbage. 200 years ago, that's how bad they got, and God brings them within that period of time, to the best years of Israel's history. There is hope for the people who repent. There is hope that God can forgive us any of our sins and that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he is faithful and he is just. There is a redeemer that gives us hope even in the middle of a garbage situation. Do you want to see it spelled out? Join me as I just, we go to the book of Hebrews as we wrap up. Hebrews chapter 11. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, as we read in a moment, it reminds us there is forgiveness for the wayward choices. There is hope for change in life when we repent and our community is impacted. There is hope for us when we follow the Lord to reap the blessings of God. They're all found in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, he picks up with the entire story. The story of the judges. Talking about their days and I read with you following along verse 32 of Hebrews 11. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who he goes on, they quenched the violence of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens or the enemies. Women received their dead raised to life again. The others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. In the middle of evil they stood strong. Watch what he says in verse 36. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered in sheep goats and sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report, they lived righteously. They did what was right. Through faith, they received not the full promises. God having provided some better things for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Wherefore seeing, we are compassed about with such a great a cloud of testimonies or martyrs or those who give us examples. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto whom? Jesus, the what? The author, the finisher of our faith, who did for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. My friend, there's hope in Jesus Christ. No matter what the troubles, what the difficulties, how bad our culture is, how difficult you are, the, how, how overcome you are by your own struggles, there is hope in Jesus Christ. What you need to do is turn to Jesus Christ. Let him be the Lord of your life. Let him be your Savior. Do not continue doing that which is right in your own eyes. Turn to him. Ask him to forgive you, and he does. Ask him to give you boldness to do right. He will. Ask him to give you victory over those things that easily beset you. He will. The bottom line is you need to turn your eyes upon Jesus. You look at him. You, do, you focus on him. The gal Helen, Helen Lemel wrote this song back in the early 1900s. She was grew, grew up in a family where they was, she was birthed in England. Her father was a Methodist preacher. And uh, they, they migrated to the United States. They ended up living in Wisconsin. And they found out very early on that this girl, Helen, had this remarkable musical ability. They got her classes. They, she developed a skill. She would sing frequently at church and do some concerts even as a, as a teenager because she was just outstanding. They sent her to all these different centers where she could learn. She, as a young lady, goes over to Europe, in Germany for a period of time. She trains even in their schools, and that's where she meets her husband. They, they get wedded. He was a, a wealthy nobleman of Germany, but they move back into the United States. They end up in Seattle, Washington, after a period of time. And when they're back there, 
she's focusing where she's using her, her abilities and she's becoming a, a critic, musical critic for some major newspapers. She also for a period of time she taught music at uh, Moody Bible Institute. She had other, other venues of jobs, things of that sort and she ends up at the end of, uh, after a period of time, she ends up using her gifts mostly in church concerts. She's um, uh, Billy Sunday, I think, is the one that she went with, and she was one of his major music individuals during some of his high, high, uh, heydays of his crusades. And all of a sudden, she gets some. Uh, she's starting having eyesight problems. She goes to the doctor and finds out when she goes to the doctor that she has a rare eye disease that's incurable. Time is going by, and she's losing her sight. Her husband does not want to deal with a handicapped person. He he deserts her. He leaves her. It's about that time that she picks up a poem from a missionary, a gal, um, Trommel? I forget the name of the, the gal off the top of my head, who had written a, a poem called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And in this poem it talks about how you need to turn your eyes upon Jesus in any trials and any troubles. Focus on Jesus and do not let the cares of this world distract you. In the middle of losing her husband going totally blind to the point that she's unable to see her communication is listen to people with her fingers like she did with, Rosa, uh, with Eisenhower. She writes a song. And in that song, she writes those words that we sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. A song that has so much meaning when you think about a blind person writing, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon him and watch what he will do. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We're going to sing this as we close.